Welcome to Cultural Technologies. I am Bernard Dionysus Gagan. What you're about to hear <clears throat> is basically part one of a two-part podcast. Uh, this is Stephen Shaviro's lecture entitled Every Time I Try to Fly, Harmony Kareen's Spring Breakers, which was delivered on the 22nd of November in Berlin, Germany at the Post-Cinematic Perspectives Conference. Uh, this was organized by Dr. Lisa Okerval and Chris uh, Tedyasukamana, uh, both of the Free University of Berlin, and this was held at the uh, Institute for Cultural Inquiry. Um, following this lecture, if you download our next episode, there'll be uh, about a 45-minute long interview uh, with Stephen Shaviro that goes further in depth with some topics that he raises during this lecture you're about to hear now. So uh, thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy, and I hope you Stick around and download the next uh, accompanying episode. Thank you. Thank you, and I want to give thanks to Lisa and Chris and to everybody else who's, who brought me here. It's great to be in Berlin. It has no relation to my talk, but I also can't help noting as an American that today's the 50th anniversary of John F. Kennedy's assassination, which was a big event for those of us, including myself, old enough to remember what, where they were 50 years ago when I was a kid when this happened. And, well, anyway, obviously there's a link between Kennedy and Berlin because of his famous visit to Berlin at the time of the war. But anyway, that's, that has no relation to my talk. So um, my talk's about the recent movie earlier this year, Harmony Korine's movie Spring Breakers. Um, but I'm going to do, there are going to be three parts of the talk. The first part is going to basically be a summary of my current work in progress about what I call post-continuity. The second part will be a discussion of Spring Breakers. And the third part at the end will be some very tentative ideas about sort of theoretical implications of what I'm trying to work through. And I regard this as something unfinished or in progress. I haven't, I don't feel I've figured this all out yet. Certainly not, I haven't written out a lot of it yet. Okay, so the first part I'm gonna summarize, this is a book in progress called Post-Continuity. And I, but post-continuity, I have a kind of general conception of stuff which has been happening in contemporary film, and I'm thinking much more of commercial Hollywood film. I don't really know that much. I've been fascinated by all the talks here. I, don't, I haven't, even somebody like Trey Carton, who seems to be very allied to these low-culture things, I've never encountered his work before. And, but anyway, um, part of the idea of post-continuity, I think it's related to the post-perspective, which is the theme of this conference. I mean, post-continuity really has to do with spreading us in out in time. Perspective really has to do with a still photo or a still image, if, and, and you get transferred from the Renaissance painting to the camera obscura to allegedly film. But because of montage and because film develops in time, I think it has a different meaning. And if you're, if you're going to talk about how this works in film, I think you have to talk about the aspects of continuity as it's created in film over time, and that's where I get the notion of post-continuity. I'm taking it from sort of, uh, the, the word post-continuity I think is mine, but I'm, take, I'm starting out from David Bordwell, who's actually 
in many ways a very conservative critic who I don't much like, but I think he's, an, he's, he's peerless as a formalist interpreter of film. So though I don't care for his kind of theoretical commitments, I value him very highly as somebody who talks about formal elements in, in, in particular films and in paradigms of this. And in 2002, he writes an article called Intensified Continuity, where he tries to identify how Hollywood films from the 1970s, the new Hollywood of 1970s, especially on, differ in look and feel from classic Hollywood films. And there are many ways they do, obviously, and not all of them are what he talks about, because, I mean, I... I I think acting style, for instance, is very different once you have the rule of method actors than you have the kind of old Hollywood. But he points out there four, he lists four major characteristics of the way in which films, starting in the new Hollywood 70, work compared to classic cinema. And, and I think all these are very apparent if you see any film of the last 40 or 50 years, you know, made in Hollywood. More rapid editing compared to early sound films. I mean, he's done statistical analyses of editing rates of how many shots per you know hour or per minute or you know the average length of shot and it's very clear that it was much higher in the, in the 20s in sound film when sound comes in they it gets radically lowered partly for technical reasons but even when the technical reasons are overcome you still have much less rapid editing until its acceleration first with the new hollywood in the 70s and then even more so say with the influence of music videos in in the 90s and so on Bipolar extremes of lens length is the second one. More close framings and dialogue scenes is the third one. And a free-ranging camera, so sort of more restless camera movement is the fourth one. And Bordwell's argument, Bordwell sort of tends to say, I mean, one of the early speakers mentioned that, you know, that Bordwell was taking conventions of Hollywood for, like, the universal attributes of human nature. And, you know, he sort of does, but... He said he said that intensified continuity, this new stylistic said, was not really a break with traditional continuity editing, you know, which is designed in various ways, both on the level of shot to shot within a scene and the level of how scenes are woven together in narrative. He said it was just amped up, amped up raised to a higher pitch of emphasis. But my hypothesis, or which I think Bordwell himself wouldn't entirely disagree with, is that as since in the last several years, especially since the new millennium, this is, it's gone too far. The American expression, it's jumped the shark, it's become, so, intensified continuity has become so intensified that sometimes the continuity isn't there anymore. You sort of have a kind of, such an amped up editing style that it's sort of become discontinuous or, from a classical point of view, incoherent. Um, so, and then, um, as I said, I'm talking on both the level of individual shot-to-shot, how you construct a scene, and on larger, sort of, how narratives are created and how a homogeneous sense of space and time is, 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 is created. And again, it's, the point is not that they've stopped using continuity, but they, it's no longer central to narrative and organization, cinematic intelligibility, as I think it was in classic Hollywood or even in the new Hollywood of the 70s. They continue to function, but they're no longer as systematic, they're no longer as central and important as they were. So, again, it's what Bordwell's account of film more or less works for a certain range of films, and obviously it's never worked for more experimental films, but even in commercial filmmaking it seems to have, it seems to have stopped working or not worked as much. Um, so intensified continuity gets pushed to the breaking point, the frequent violations of continuity rules. And a lot of this, it was first noted by people, Bordwell himself admits this is happening, complains that this is happening in action sequences in recent films. Um, Matthias Stork is a graduate student who did a video, an essay, a video essay called Chaos Cinema, which appeared on the internet a couple years ago, where he 
gave a very systematic account of this, of the ways in which, say, action sequences from the 70s and 80s by Sam Peckinpah or Steven Spielberg or John Woo were observing a kind of very careful continuity style. So even though we have fast cutting and a flurry of action, you sort of know where everything is. And comparing it, and again, he was unfavorable to the newer style, compare it to films by, let's say, the Bourne films by the Bourne films or some of the recent James Bond films or some of the films, recent films of Michael Bay or the late Tony Scott are sort of doing something different. They have such rapid cutting and such, you know, over-editing that you lose any sense of spatial orientation and, and coherence in a certain way. And so these are some of the characteristics. The intensified continuity, the, the stylistic traits which Bordwell named are still there, but they're pushed further and further. You have immediate visceral effects which trump overall cons coherence. I mean, someone like Michael Bay, who admittedly I don't much care for, but is a very commercially successful director, is it's almost like he's trying to see his cutting is not based on principle, how does one shot relate to another shot? It's cutting is based on principle, how should I cut it so that the, I give the maximum jolt to the audience from second, second by second. Some of these other things are listed here, use of shaky handheld cameras, extreme angles, composited digital material, everything stitched together by very rapid cuts, they're often mismatches, again, continuity violations. Spatio-temporal continuity doesn't seem to be the thing anymore, and there's a sensory overload, density, and rapidity of what we see in here. And it, again, many people have deplored this from the point of view of conventional narrative storytelling. And I kind of think it's, it's different. It doesn't mean it's worse. And again, for everything is, they're better and worse examples of this. So it's a new kind of aesthetic, which is used in good ways by some people and crummy ways by other people. But again, the question I think is the board baskers and McLuhan's one. How do they alter our sense ratios, ratios? How do they change our patterns of perception? Okay, so here's a little chart, which I just, again, this is stuff which I'm going to, which I'm, you know, I'm working towards a book on post-continuity, which will contain this, some of it's been on my blog, and and, and some of it I've given this other talks. So, I mean, again, I'm just going to repeat what it says here. Organized narrative versus a dispersed narrative, Euclidean space-time for a kind of non-Euclidean space-time. The continuity is totally essential versus that it's incidental. They use it when it, you know, fits, but they, they'll throw it aside when they don't care. Continuity editing, I think, implies a classical view of space as a rigid container, a kind of Newtonian view of space. Post-continuity implies either, you know, Einsteinian relativistic space-time, or also implies what Manuel Castell called a space of flows, um, his description of the new space of new globalized capital. Time is uniform and linear in continuity editing, and even though, of course, films always cheat on time because you don't spend eight hours watching the characters sleep between one action scene and the one the next day, still there's a kind of sense of, and even though you have a lot of flashbacks, there's a sense of, of, of uniform time and of linear causality in narrative versus a time of micro-intervals, and this often, these often means things which escape the thresholds of, of our perception, and with a kind of structural multi-causality. I mean, you can see this in one subgenre of Hollywood films where they have like four or five stories going on, and if you compare, say, a classic film like Grand Hotel, 1932 MGM, which has lots of multiple storylines to, you know, some, you know, some of the recent films like Syriana, you know, which have multiple storylines. I think there's a difference in how they're structured. You might say that the aim of continuity editing was to simulate natural perception, even though it wasn't really natural because, of course, we don't see by first seeing an establishing shot and then seeing a close-up. But it was made to psychologically trigger things which make it feel like natural perception was being simulated. Whereas this post-continuity just has no bones about denaturalizing our, our perception. 
Okay, uh, and then a short list of what I see is varieties of what I'm calling post-continuity. Certainly, it comes up first in what Matthias Stork called chaos cinema, so recent Hollywood action films by the likes of Bay, Greengrass, and Scott. Special, but, they, but there are other people have suggested other things, and I've added more myself. Several people have mentioned spatial displacement in, long, in films with really long takes, um, but with moving cameras, like that's some of the guest Van Sant's film, Jerry and Elephant, for instance. Um, also, I'd say restlessly moving handheld cameras in Dogma 95 style. Um, then there's simulated found footage films like the Paranormal Activity series of, of low-budget horror films, or a recent example, I think, was an interesting science fiction film which played on the internet called Europa Report, which is very much about how perception is involves all kinds of technology, technological mediation to see things which we couldn't see with our own eyes. The astronauts really can't go out their space capsule because it's 200 degrees below zero outside, but they have all these cameras and sensors and things, and they're watching all these screens. Um, you have mixed footage films, like Brian De Palma's Redacted, about the Iraq War, which has... I, they're all simulated, or they're all actually shot by De Palma, but they simulate various sources, including internet videos, you know, home home videos, news news reports, and documentaries, things like that. You have an increasing amount of digitally enhanced reality. Editor writes Scott Pilgrim vs. the World is a very good example of that, as is a film that's been very much preoccupied recently, just Tom's detention. But it's there's, there's a more general way in which, even when it's not as overt, where digital compositing is enhancing reality. Lev Manovich's new book, Software Takes Command, has a lot of stuff about this. And last, I'd say many recent music videos, which sort of use digital technologies and digital mixing in ways that make it hard to even say, you know, how many shots are there? Is this an editing or is this cinematography or is this mise-en-scene? It just gets all scrambled up. We can talk more about that later. Okay, but given, so that's the framework of, of the book I'm writing, and I have some, I'm going to discuss some of the films I mentioned. I have, I, I mean, one of the films I'm discussing will be Tony Scott's Domino, his kind of most delirious uh, so he's a mainstream action director, but his most delirious, visually and sonically delirious film. Another is a film I just mentioned, Joseph Kahn's um, Detention, which is an ultra-low budget, not very well-known film by a music video director, but which is doing a lot of, I think, interesting pioneering things. Another is a paranormal activity series of films, which I mentioned. Another is, which I'm more trying to write about now, is Spring Breakers. So what I'll turn to now is try to talk about this film. Okay, it's a kind of film which has been uh, attracted a lot of comment for good reasons, it's, it's for, including for sociological reasons, but what I find is that though it's been extensively discussed on the internet, not that many people talk about what I can only call its delirious aestheticism, which, I mean, sort of combines an aggressively pop culture content with a kind of extreme abstract stylization. I mean, it's the kind of thing which you might find more in in, in high art or even, I mean, Again, in some of the videos we saw talked about earlier today, but which you don't as often see on films made with well-known actors and commercial and commercially produced to be shown on regular Hollywood screens and then on, on DVD and Blu-ray. But um, Kareen is Harmony Kareen's an interesting director who's always pushing these kinds of things. He's actually maybe most famous for the film Kids by Larry Clark, for which he supplied the dialogue. He wrote the screenplay when he was like 19 years old, but. He's had four full-length, five full-length films as a director, and they're all really different from each other um, in stylistics, and, and, and I mean, they especially they style different ways. 
there's certain con there's certain commonalities of content, I think, more than a form. I mean, he's always experimenting with form. Trash Humpers, which was a film just before Spring Breakers, and the two share a very similar plot. But Trash Humpers was was shot entirely on VHS tape because he wanted the image to look as crappy and ugly and barely legible as possible. It stars him and his friends all wearing these hideous, like obviously fake old people masks, so they look like old people, which is what their characters are, but it's like completely made not to be believable. And um, Spring Breakers is sort of the opposite of that because it has very glossy, you know, high-definition cinematography, and as I'll talk about more, and is very conventionally beautiful in certain ways. But the, both films have similar preoccupations as his earlier films do. All of his films seem to portray losers, um, and they all, you know, which is, again, sort of goes against... There's no more American word than talking about losers, but it's very American to hate losers and to scorn losers. You know, if you, it's your own fault if you're a loser and, you know, you're not worthy of consideration. And his films all kind of celebrate losers, celebrate failure, celebrate inability to adapt to our neoliberal world. Um, also, most, almost all, all his films, I'd say, involve American, mostly American, but certainly white lower class characters and their issues and problems about his treatment of race, which I'll come back, come back to. In, 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 you know, in, in depicting, I mean, it's because of the way race and class are intertwined in America, it's very hard to talk about poor white people without either showing, either middle class and upper class white showing total condescension towards them or with comparing them in one way or another to poor black people. And Korean follows this pattern in disturbing ways. I mean, the main one of the main characters in, in Spring Breakers, Alien, played by James Franco, is basically a white rapper gangster guy who's, whose entire life is based on an imitation of gangster style in a certain, which in, in, in other words, not an imitation of real African-American culture, but an imitation of how African-American culture is packaged and sold for consumption. And there's something very disturbing about this. Um, the, we have, if the plot of Spring Breakers, such as there's a plot, is about these four young women who commit a robbery in order to get money to go to Spring Break in, in Florida. And then Two of the four end up going back home. The other two get in, increasingly involved in aliens' world of gangsterdom and, and so on. And as we'll see, James Franco's character Alien is quite definitely a loser character, like all the other characters in all of Korean's other films. I'm not sure whether the young women are. I think it's maybe different or more complicated. I'll come back to that. Okay. The other thing is obviously its complete embeddedness in pop culture. And part of the thing about it, or part of the attempt to evoke scandal about it is that he takes these two act Disney actresses, Selena Gomez from The Wizards of Waverly Place, Vanessa Hudgens from the High School Musical movies, and puts them in very not-safe-for-kids roles. And my 11-year-old daughter you know, allowed me to show this picture in my presentation. It's her, bed it's her bedroom, and you'll notice she has lots of pictures up over her bed. I mean, most of them, there weren't two other people, but almost all of them are pictures of Selena Gomez. And my daughter, you know, loves Selena Gomez, and it's, it's her favorite celebrity, and you know, and is really you know part of the kind of cult of Selena Gomez. So here's Selena Gomez acting in a role which is very different from the Disney sitcoms, which is and or saw or music, which my daughter's seen her in. And obviously, my daughter is 11. I'm not going to let her watch Spring Breakers until she's considerably older. Um, but. This is also part of a kind of larger trend. The larger trend, I mean, the most among Disney characters, the most uh, the most best known example now is not either Gomez or Hudgens, but Miley Cyrus, because Miley Cyrus, trying to who used to be Hannah Montana, a very popular series of albums and Disney sitcom for 
for for for tweens, you know, kids between the age of eight and twelve, um, what has you know aggressively tried to change her image by doing these sort of semi-obscene, highly sexualized videos and performances, which has created a lot of, I mean, they've worked in the world, world sense that no publicity is bad publicity. They've, everybody's talking about her, and Cyrus says, her profile has certainly been raised by this, even though a lot of the talk about it is to deplore it. Um, there are issues, Miley Cyrus is sort of putting herself in videos and performances that have raunchy sexual content, is also, however, again, related to questions of race, since it seems that she's appropriating twerking as an kind of African-American dance style and putting sort of black women in the backs of her videos to sort of play off herself against them. And this is a kind of disturbing and somewhat racist trend, which is very similar to what's happening in, in, in a lot of other things, in um, Spring Breakers. It's been much discussed on the internet over the last six months because it's just been happening most recently the British pop star Lily Allen put a new video, which is sort of a, supposed to be a strong feminist message of self-empowerment and not becoming a, just a sex object for men to look at, but which at the same time, again, as she's been much criticized for including you know, black women flaunting state sexuality in outrageous ways as a background dancers to draw the contrast. So the kind of mainstream, crass, misogynistic culture she's condemning turns out to be black people, and she's the only white person in the video, and she's the one, well, there's also her manager who's trying to make her still up, but, but she's the one who represents, you know, this enlightenment. And so there's a totally problematic racial thing going on in, in these things, and it seems related to this this idea of busting out and changing one's image to become more adult or more unsafe, you know, more NC-17 rating instead of G rating or something like that. Um, we also have, again, the iconography here, I mean, which Corinne in his director's commentary on the DVD or Blu-ray talks a lot about how he, he was tracked to Spring Break because it's this all-American thing. He sees that iconic. Um, Spring Break is, has been popularized in the last decade because of basically MTV reality shows, which just show these college boys and girls or young men and young women going to, you know, going down to Florida for spring break from, from the university, getting completely shit-faced and doing all kinds of raunchy drug and sex-related things. And obviously, um, Corrine is very much playing on this, though, as we'll see with some differences. Um, but anyway, a lot of people, so this has gotten a lot of commentary, and I'll come back to that. I mean, it's certainly, I don't think you can, you can just take the film as a pure formalist film and ignore that, but it's puzzled me the extent to which nobody's looked at it as a kind of formalist film, and it's actually a very almost obsessively formalist film in, 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 cer in certain ways. Um, and you can see this in some of, again, Corrine's comments and interviews and in the DVD commentary on the DVD, but it's almost never picked up by anybody talking about the film. So one is the cinematography. As I mentioned, Trash Humpers was deliberately done to be as low quality as possible, and he actually, you know, scrounged up VHS with material, you know, tape and cameras, which is very hard to do in 2009. Um, here, instead, he has cinematography by Benoit Deby, who did, who is the cinematographer for Gaspar Noé's two best-known films, Irreversible and Enter the Void. So, so we have he he hires a cinematographer who's, you know who he wanted to hide because he could stylize the visuals in a certain way. Corrine talks about a pop gloss and tone for the for the for his for the film. He talks about neon colors, candy colors. He said he wants the film to be lit with Skittles, which I, I are they are they Skittles in Germany? It's it's a kind of competitor, MMs, it's an American candy. So you you're filled with a kind of I mean there's a kind of visual gorgeousness to the film. Sunset shots over the water, 
very it's very picturesque. He has often interior shots have kind of neon lighting, which is very un unusual. He also has lots of slow motion, and again, some of the imagery I mean is indistinguishable from. He has imagery repeated of you know just college kids in spring break, just you know drinking snow, you know drinking huge amounts of alcohol, um, smoking marijuana from bongs, you know women, young women sort of flashing their tits, all this kind of stuff is going on. And it's exactly the same imagery that you see in these MTV reality shows, except that it's always in slow motion when Corrine does it. And there's a kind of obsessive use of the film of slow motion in a way that kind of alters one's perception. And, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a way of beautifying things. I think sometimes slow motion is used by directors in order to um, analyze what's going on. I mean, that's what, when Godard used slow motion in Sophie Kiput Lavi, his comeback film in 1981, he's, he's a lot of slow motion and he said that this was so you can the only way you can understand what the characters are doing is if you see them very slowly. But I'm not sure that Corrine's interest is analytic, but there's a kind of, again, an aestheticizing gloss to the film which comes from this use of slow motion. So we have this images of sex and violence, but this is also in the plot. So we have, like, basically, it's four, it, it's, it's four girls or young women who are all college students who are bored. They want to go to spring break. They don't have enough money. Um, two or three of them get involved in a robbery of, 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 a, of, a, of a fast food joint in order to get the money to go to spring break. And one of them says to the others when, you know, it's hard to distinguish the two main women, as we'll see, but... Um, this is a quote from the, from the screenplay. Um, one of them says to the others, just fucking pretend it's like it's a video game. Act like you're in a movie or something. That's how they can, you know, take fake guns and, you know, go into the fast food joint to be brutal and get money from, from all the customers as well as from the cash register. And it becomes to them like this, this, this kind of game. So in a certain sense, the whole movie is aestheticizing. It's, it's, it's aestheticizing this kind of aesthetic distance or aesthetic of vicarious involvement is very much this kind of idea that it's like a video game where, you know, you're killing thousands of people, but it's just a video game, that even your real life becomes like a video game. But Kareem, this, Kareem himself talks a lot about the look and feel of the film, and again, I find it interesting, he says often the same sentence, that both that it's hyper-real and it's impressionistic, two terms which seem more like opposites than to really go together, yet in a strange way, I think the way the film feels does go, go together. And I just have a few slides of to show some of the visual things going on in the film. So suddenly there's a sunset over, the, over Florida. There's another sunset, very differently colored. This is one of the interiors. This is actually when the two remaining women come to sh you know, shoot and kill everybody. But the house is just lit up in this purple and blue in this weird kind of way. There's also a kind of, this is the, the characters in their dorm room before they go to spring break. And Corrine, um, explicitly comments about this. He says he wanted to make something sculptural. He just thought them lying, you know, standing on their heads and putting their legs against the wall it really looked sculptural and he really liked the way it looked and that's why it's in the film. And I think I take Corina's word here because I think the film, again, is doing all these kinds of visual arrangements with, with color and light which are quite unusual and qualitative themselves and make the film also more unreal or more aestheticized and I think that's part of the whole point of the film. But I think, as I said, if I'm talking about post-continuity and not just post-perspective, it's partly because I think you have to talk about time as well as space. And again, the temporal organization of the film, I think, is quite interesting. It has an ostensible narrative, but it doesn't really have the kind of drive of narrative. Corrine himself compares what he's doing to sample-based electronic dance music. He says, I have loops and samples, and they repeat in slight variations, and this is really the organization of the movie. And 
the score is is by Skrillex and Cliff Martinez. Cliff Martinez used to be a member of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but for the last 10 or 15 years he's been a Hollywood score person, has made scores for lots of films. Skrillex is a currently popular kind of electronic musician, though I think people really involved with electronic music, dance, electronic dance music, scoring him as a kind of popular vulgarizer of the music for the masses, but that may be precisely why he's in, in, in the film. So we have this kind of electronic music. We also have Britney Spears, who I'll come back to. Um, again, some of Kareem's own descriptions of it. He says he wants it to be hypnotic like a drug experience. He describes what he's doing, liquid narrative micro-scenes, images that loop. And again, I think these are interesting terms, but I think they are related to something which is really going on, which is the movie has... It has multiple flashbacks and flash-forwards. It's not really linear in any conventional sense. I mean, it's more or less linear because in the first part of them, they haven't gone to spring break yet, and then they go to spring break, and then one of them leaves, and the second one leaves, and the other two, you know, sort of finish up, and they're going to leave at the end. But at the same time, these aren't really in order. So you have these little scenes which often get repeated, which are sometimes put out of order. Um, it's it's repeatedly happening, and, and very, there are various things that are happening with time. One is a sense of repetition, another is... I can only compare it to imperfective versus perfective tenses in various languages, which is something which almost doesn't exist in English. And it exists in other, like they say, it exists in Romance languages. I'm really not sure, I don't know that much about German, enough about German to know. But I mean, a lot of other languages, though English doesn't have it, have, you know, two forms of a verb in every tense, whether it's perfect or imperfect. So it's a grammatical term. But the imperfect is like a habitual action, like you're not narrating a particular time when something happened, an event, you're narrating something that would be done repeatedly. And the film often has this effect, even though, as far as you can tell, if you try to work out the chronology, the whole thing takes place in under a week, some spring breaks a week long, and it's only like in a few days. It gets the sense of they've entered this new world and they're just sort of doing these things, and this is the stuff they do, and the way the narrative goes back and forth, it's, it's often, I mean, there's one scene, which I won't show, but it, I, one scene, there are two Britney Spears songs in the movie. I'll talk about the second one at more length, but the first one, the four young women are just sort of standing in the parking lot and they start spontaneously start singing Britney Spears and we sort of get the whole song. They sing it, you know, verse by verse, but in one, in one scene they, they sing one verse and they're sort of standing around the parking lot and sort of dancing around. Then the next shot, which would be sequentially the next verse of the song, they're sitting by, they're, they're sitting down by the side of of a convenience store right outside it. Then the third one they're dancing in. So, I mean, it, it, it couldn't, describe actual linear action, just the way the scenes are edited one after each other. It, it much more, again, exemplifies this idea of, repet of habitual action or imperfect and imperfective, um, I guess it's not tense, aspect, grammatically. Um, then you get, there are a few key scenes, the violent key scenes of the film get replayed also. So the robbery of the chicken shack, which is the fictitious name of the fictitious fast food joint, um, is presented to us twice, and they're very different kinds. The first time we see it, it's a continuous traveling shot for over a minute. And two of the girls go into the store, go into the store, and the third one is a getaway driver, and she's driving the car alongside. And we see from inside the car, we see her, like the car, the cameras in the in the passenger seat. We see her, and then we see beyond her. We see through the windows into what's going on in in the in the store as the, as the other girls are robbing the store. And then later on, they're they're reenacting it, and the reenaction goes in between. You know them saying, you know, get down on the floor, bitch, get down right now. I'm going to shoot you. You know, break, blast your brains out. Things like that. They're acting it out with one another, but then that gets intercut with shots of the robbery actually happening. Except they're not the same shots from the first time. They're instead handheld. They shouldn't sit inside the 
the, the, the store instead of outside it. It's much more violent and disturbing inside their handheld cameras, which are jerky and, and you have rapid editing. And so even when you have an event which is kind of singular as opposed to repeated in the movie, it's, it's being done in these different ways and repeated. And I mean, motivationally, you can say the second time they're, they're narrating it, but you're brought back to it in this more visceral way than the first time. And the th I mean, these are just some examples because I think the film is continually doing this, this kind of stuff. So it's continually messing with kind of narrative form. Now, I think, you know, Corrine says that he's trying to make it like electronic dance music. I think he actually is. Um, so Robin James is an American philosopher who's been writing about recent about who writes a lot about music about pop music, and she sees the difference between say pop song like the Beatles to contemporary electronic dance music is like is really a shift from a liberal to a neoliberal episteme, so from tonality to extratonal pop from emphasis on harmony and melody to emphasis on rhythm and timbre. What she means by that is that. Um, a Beatles song, no less than a 19th century sonata or concerto, starts in the tonic, goes to the dominant, goes into other keys, and eventually comes back to the tonic. And pop music, not just the Beatles, but like from Burt, you know, show tunes in the 30s and Burt Bacharach and the Beatles and all, and much of 20th century Anglo-American pop music is organized in this way. It has the same kind of tonal organization that 19th century classical music has. But recent electronic dance music, I'm not sure you can parallel it to Stockhausen or to other, you know, to avant-garde music classical music the last 50 years, but it, all, but it de definitely doesn't have this kind of tonal focus anymore. And so I have, a, this is a lengthy quote, but it's her description of how these, this dance music is now organized. Songs unfold in time by ping-ponging back and forth between upper and lower asymptotes of intensity, sometimes at faster frequencies, sometimes at slower frequencies, sometimes with differently shaped attacks and decays, square instead of curve, for example. There's little to no sense of forward motion. You're just riding the peaks and valleys of a sine wave, pushing upper and lower limits over and over again, but never crossing them. And again, so you, you not only have a more insistent pulse and more emphasis on rhythm and timbre instead of on melodic and harmonic variation, but you also have things like, you know, more instruments come in or it gets more intense, and then, then there's a drop, and for like two seconds there's silence or only a drum, and then it comes back, and you have this kind of buildup to increasing and decreasing intensity. And James um, compares this to certain structures of neoliberal subjectivity, where, uh, again, it's sort of like... Um, you're supposed to be able to be more intense but maintain your kind of subjective coherence with, with being more intense. Uh, I'll come back to that. But anyway, so what Corinne calls liquid narrative, I think, really is doing something analogous to film form, which electronic dancing music does to, to musical form. So EDM doesn't depend on tonality, but, it no, but it's no longer an organizing principle. And I'm saying the same thing about continuity in these post-continuity films that they don't abandon continuity rules, but they aren't what organizes the, them an, anymore. So in, in Spring Breakers, you have a sequencing of micro-scenes instead of a full-fledged narrative progression. I mean, there is sort of a, a, a narrow... A lot of people who didn't like the film complain. The characters aren't really deep. The characters don't get developed. Um, not very much happens besides what's totally cliched and predictable. And in a certain sense, that's true, but I would say it sort of doesn't matter in terms of what the film is doing aesthetically. Um, it's or, you know, organized by these repeating patterns and you have things going forward and back. You have transitions marked by sounds of gunfire. When he goes from one scene to a completely different scene, you just hear some gunfire on the, on the soundtrack and that fits in with the whole kind of hip-hop gangster theme which is, which is being emulated by the, all the white people who are the main characters. Um, the scenes are composed of related but nonlinear sequences. I mentioned how singing this Britney Spears song in the parking lot is one example of that. 
There's a lot of counterpoint of sound and image, which I'll talk more about in a minute. You see one thing, but you hear another thing. You have voiceovers that contradict what's being shown on screen. I'll talk more about that in a moment also. You often have transference. The four women in the film are not that clearly distinguished. Well, there are four of them. Selena Gomez's character is marked as different than other She's religious, and she's the one who gets really upset about what's going on. What happens is they just go down to party and have a good time, and they're all having a great time, and then they get arrested in a drug bust. And then um, James Franco's character um, busts, you know, pays their bail so they, or, or pays the fine so they can get out of jail. The alternative is either they have to be in jail for like three days or they have to pay a fine. He pays the fine for them so they don't have to be in jail for three days. And then he takes them under his wing, and Selena Gomez's character gets kind of freaked out by him, and she leaves. And then the three remaining ones, one of them gets shot in a drive-by shooting by, um, by James Frank, Franco's rival, played by the rapper Gucci Mane. And so she leaves. And the other two who, who remain, it almost becomes impossible to distinguish them. I can't really tell them apart. They both look almost the same. They both act almost the same. But there's a kind of whole sense in which there's a different kind of subjectivity, even of the protagonists, because of the ways in which the four young women interacting are kind of a group protagonist rather than a single person. Um, and anyway, that, that's the thing emphasized. You have voiceovers. One of them says at one point, and then 30 minutes later, you hear the same lines recited by a different one of the, of the four young women. Um, actions are, as I said, even when we have a narrative thing, overall they're, they're, they're out of order. And, um, and this is done, especially the shootout at the end, the, the final kind of climax or action, you know, payoff scene is done in, it's not only done in slow motion and with this weird lighting, but it's also like, isn't done in order. I'll, I'll try to come back to that if I have the, if I have the time. And so there's a way in which even when it does sort of have a narrative, it's not really interested in the thrust of narrative or this kind of, narrative arc because it's deranging that by, again, insisting on this very micro level. You have these little scenes which repeat in, or which repeat with variations which keep on coming back. And again, it's it's totally intelligible, to, I think, to a mainstream audience, though. The film made $25 million of the box office, which is a profit since it made very cheaply, but $25 million is not really a success in mainstream American terms. So it was more talked about by the intelligentsia on the web than it was viewed by the masses in the U.S. at least. But, you know, it, it is intelligible, narratively intelligent, intelligible, as, but at the same time, it's not really, it's, it's really not really doing the narrative because of all these different ways it's, it's temporalizing. Okay, so now what I want to do is show one scene from, this is like a four, four, four and a half minute long scene. This is, this is, this is the second time we have a Britney Spears song in, and it's, uh, it's a quite, amazing scene for all the things which are going on in it, but it's, it exemplifies, it's one of the best scenes in the film, but also exemplifies, I think, what Corrine's doing generally. So I'll, I'll just play the scene, and then we'll talk about it. Okay. Hopefully, I'll, this is on the web, so hopefully I'll be able to. Can you make it louder? This is... I made it maximum here. Yes. Are we hearing it or not? Singer by the name of Miss Britney Spears. Mm -hmm. 
the greatest singers of all time and an angel if they ever wanted one on this earth. <laughs> Kind of wonder what you're gonna even do with a sequence like that. I mean, 
it's worth mentioning that I didn't show you the sequence before this, and the sequence before this is when Candy and Britt, the two most outrageous of the four women, um, are sort of fooling around with Alien and with his guns, and they they basically point the guns in his mouth, and first he says, oh, there's a loaded, put him down, and then but then he starts fellating them and showing pleasure in doing this, so he's like, it becomes this kind of, I mean, as a part of what happens in terms of, I think, the gender relations of the film, it's, as I'll talk about, many people have seen this as a kind of feminist film, though perhaps qualified as some of the other things I mentioned, some of the videos I mentioned earlier by the racial politics, but um, it's sort of like Alien first thinks he can sponsor these 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 girls or young women, and then at this the point the, the scene just before this when when he basically goes down on their gun on their guns which they're pointing in his mouth and which are we're told are fully loaded is kind of um, a transfiguration moment or a moment where the balance changes in some way. And that anyway, that's like two minutes before you just saw. Um, but and what do you make of the sequence? The most the most traditional way to say how is this like things in earlier cinema would be say either it's a montage sequence you know it's like every, lots of Hollywood films from the classic period and from more recent periods have you know to show a series of repeated actions over time you sort of you sort of have music and you have a over the sometimes you have a calendar with leaves coming off but you know so here they're going out and robbing other other spring break spring breakers and and stuff like that and you sort of see that as habitual but you can also think of it as an intellectual montage in the tradition, you know, from Eisenstein to Godard and Makaveyev, in terms of that you have violent contradictions both within the image and between the sound and the image. But I kind of, and I think those are true, but I think it actually works in a, in a kind of different way for, for various reasons. Um, for one thing, I mean, it's worth pointing out the iconography. I mean, first of all, there's something grotesque about seeing, you see a lot of the, I mean, a lot of the film is just displaying the bodies of these young women wearing, little, wearing only bikinis. So, I mean, the film, again, Corrine's really trying to have it both ways. He's trying to, you know, have this kind of male gaze, sort of having these women, young women's bodies completely on display. But at the same time, he's creating a narrative which kind of empowers them against the male gaze, you might say. So that's already a kind of weird contradiction. But in this one, though, we've seen them before. We don't see, they all are wearing these kind of balaclavas. I mean, some people, I've read several articles compared to Pussy Riot, but of course, I think this was shot before Pussy Riot did their thing in Moscow, which got them arrested, where they were wearing those, that headgear. But it's the same headgear, except they're pink, so they're like ski masks, and which they are using for robberies, but they're pink. They have My Little Pony embroidered on them. Um, then at the same time, they're wearing sweatpants, which say DTF. DTF means down to fuck, and it's a line of sportswear sold by two of the women who appeared in the ultra-sleazy reality show Jersey Shore. Um, they're carrying, I'm not, I don't really know my guns, so they might not be AK-48-7s, but they're some kind of, you know, semi-automatic gun. Um, and you have this old juxtaposed with the Britney Spears song. You have a kind of thing which, again, has really only happened unless, I had a graduate student who was writing a dissertation on this phenomenon of using pop songs and not just using them for coloration, but in fact having the whole song in the movie so it's like a music video. Um, but anyway, that's so that's been happening. It really hasn't happened before the mid-1990s in Hollywood films. That's happening here. You start out with James Franco playing the piano and singing the Britney Spears song, and then it transmogrifies into we hear most of the actual song. But it's a kind of very... I mean, again, what the song is, again, is a weird counterpoint to these images. Um, you have... He said they asked him to sing something sweet, uplifting, set, inspiring, and he says you want me to see, you want to see my sensitive side, 
And, you know, I, you know, sensitive might be a word for it, sweet, up, and uplifting, inspiring is a little weird for this song, if you actually listen to the song. The song's very aspirate. I mean, I see the mood of the song as being aspirational, as being about vulnerability. Um, it's every time I try to fly, I fall without my wings, I feel so small, I guess I need you, baby. It's a kind of love song about a broken relationship. It's about failing to fly. Every time I try, it's about failing to take off, to lift off, to get above the ground. Um, and the video, actually the music video of the song from directed by David LaChapelle is very interesting. If we had more time, I'd play it. The music video was eventually, it, it basically shows Britney Spears being hounded by fans and in a bad relationship and committing suicide. And this leaked out before the video was released and it got a horrified public reaction. So they modified it and they sort of pulled their punches and as the video now stands, I don't think the original version has ever been seen, um, it's, it's, it's a dream or a fantasy. So, so we see Britney Spears and her boyfriend in a limousine, they come out, they're handed by paparazzi, the, it, it, it's really annoying and entertaining, and then she and the boyfriend go into the hotel room and they immediately start arguing, and, the boyfriend, and she's telling off the boyfriend, he starts throwing things and breaking mirrors and things like that, she goes in and takes a bath, slips under in, into the bathtub and drowns, and then you see a second Brittany, it's a kind of spirit of Brittany, going, into, going, to the, going around the hospital and seeing two scenes, one of Brittany's spirits being rushed to the hospital and they can't revive her, she's, it's too late and she's dead, and the other of a woman giving birth, so you have, so what they added to the video was, they, you know, was a sort of happy ending, and then at the very end you have Brittany Spears coming out from the bathtub, so she was really just fantasizing that she wasn't actually killing herself, but, so they pulled his punches, but I mean, it's a very downbeat kind of video, and it's, 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 I mean, Spears' whole career is um, sort of involves things like this. Even before her very public breakdown, she had videos and songs which were dealing with the difference between private persona and public image and, and things like this. And also, as I think Scott Interante, who was one of the people who wrote about the film online, noted that the song comes from 2004. So if, if, these, if these characters, not the actresses are a little older than their characters, but if the characters are really like 2021 in 2012 when the film was shot, or 2013 when it was released, and they would have been 11 or 12 when this film came out, when this song came out. And again, I think it's a very different style from the dubstep and trap music, which is most, and Skrillex, which is most of the soundtrack, but it sort of again, represents, again, in this perverse way, their innocence because it's going back to, to when they were... To, to when they were much younger, when they were just prepubescent or just on the verge of puberty, when their sensibilities were kind of being formed, and that's why they they remember these songs and sing along with them. I, as I mentioned, there's that earlier Britney Spears song from the same period, which they sing spontaneously in the parking lot, and there was an interesting. Some of the actors were being interviewed on a TV talk show, and they host it, so I'm like, you, know, you don't really know that song, and Selena Gomez says, "Yeah, of course we know this song," and they start singing spontaneously on on the set of the talk show to show that you know, this wasn't the kind of coached thing, really, or wasn't the kind of overdubbed thing. But anyway, um, so you have a kind of very complicated thing going on with what the song is, what the music is, even aside from the fact that the visuals consist of these kind of slow-mo, aestheticized because in slow motion, shots of brutality of of Franco's character and the girls robbing other spring breakers, mixed with them doing this dance, again, wearing, this, wearing the the sweatpants and the balaclavas covering their face and holding up these rifles and sort of dancing on the rifles and holding together and dancing in a circle and this kind of stuff. Again, it's, I mean, I really think of this as what I want to call effective dissonance. I mean, cognitive dissonance is a well-known phrase, but it's, this isn't, so, isn't just about cognition. I mean, you do have 
con- it is cognitively dissonant because you have different ideas, but it's kind of affectly, affectively dissonant. And the question is, how do you, I mean, how does one respond to this affectively? I think it's a very aestheticized movie, as I said. It's also a very affectively pulling at your movie. And, I mean, I just, you have all these different things, both in that sequence and the film as a whole. And the question of what you believe and what you don't when you see contrasting things at the same time, you're pulled in these different ways. And I think it's not just pulled in information, but pulled in feeling. I also think there's something going on with, I didn't put this in, in the slide, but there's something going on with sound and image. I think in traditional Hollywood films, you have, um, I think if you have a contradiction between sound and image, you believe the image because seeing is believing. And that's often used in, in very mainstream films. I mean, in Singing in the Rain, MGM, you know, one of the, the most famous MGM musical, you have at the beginning of the film Gene Kelly's telling the crowd, telling the radio audience and the crowd at the theater about about his career, and so he has this narration about how high-minded it is, and then you see that it was really very, you know, low. So as we tour into the best aca- music academies, and you see they're in some kind of saloon as kids doing this dance routine and stuff like that. So I, mean, I think that's kind of typical. Hitchcock once did a thing where there was a voiceover and a flashback, and it turned out to be fo- to be a lie. But it, the reason that it was disruptive was because when you see when you see something, you believe it. That's really happening, and that's. I think very deeply ingrained into, I guess, the way traditional movies work. I think with digital images, there's been a shift, and I've written about this elsewhere, but I think that sound becomes more important than than image in a certain way, or the relation has changed, and I hear I do draw on Michel Chion a lot. Chion says that um, sound has, is kind of, he doesn't use the word, but it's like Derrida's word, supplemental. Sound is secondary, and yet its secondariness actually creates, helps reinforce or even create the primacy of the image which we think of without thinking of the sound. But Shion suggests that changes in television, music videos, and video installations, and I think it's also changed in digital cinema also. So I don't think we just, if we see some, somebody, hear somebody saying something and see something which contradicts it, I don't think we say, oh, they're deluded. I think the, the, the emotional power of the music and the words have, have their, their effect on us. And this is especially true, I think, with um, there, there are several voiceovers, but there's one early in the film where Selena Gomez's character, who I said is the one who's religious and who leaves early, and who's not really involved in the robbery, she says to them, I, when they're telling what they did, I hate what you did, and I'm glad that you did it because this coming here for spring break is so great, but she's the one who then pulls out who can't deal with James Franco's character. But there's a whole sequence where she's talking to her grandmother on the phone, telling her what she's doing in Florida, and then you have, again, a montage in very many different scenes of what the girls are doing, and she's I'm starting to think this is the most spiritual place I've ever been. feels as if the world is perfect, like it's never going to end. And she's, and it goes on. I mean, it's, it's quite long. She talks about, we've met friends here, friends who were just people just who are just like us. These are friends who will last a lifetime, and it's, it's a really spiritual place. It's more than just having a good time, all this kind of stuff. And, and that's, the, 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 the dialogue, it gets repeated at the very end, exactly of the scene when they're going to the mansion of the Gucci main character and just basically killing everybody with these semi-automatic guns. And in the midst of this blood bloodbath, which is also in slow motion, you have the same words repeated, but by a different character, one of the two remaining girls who's, who, who's doing this. So I don't think some things I've read about it online, such as this is just a kind of irony that they're saying this thing, but we see that spring break really isn't like this. But I don't think so. I think... The film, at least my reading or my experience of the film, is that it forces you to take these things seriously at the same time that you take the, the what you see seriously. And the, there's some kind of weird about the balance between sound and image, and that's partly why 
I think, I mean, part of the emotional pull of the film has to do with this affective dissonance, and it has to do with the way in the way in which we can't just write out or be ironic about what we've about what we see. And this, I mean, I think it's a post-ironic film, and post-irony is a term I've been coming across in several different places and using a lot recently. And um, in different popular culture sources, there are different explanations to what post-irony means. Sometimes it's um, it's that hipsters claim to like elevator music. This is from a novel by Alex Shekhar called The Savage Girl from, from 2001. He explains post he He's the first person I find used post irony. He explains as follows. Hipsters say they like elevator music because that's the, you know, the most boring music there is, so they're being more hip than anybody else who likes something which nobody else likes. But then when they really like it and no longer are saying this just ironically be serious, that's post-irony. But I think there may be kinder ways of, of, of thinking it. And again, it has to do with... Um, I mentioned a bunch of, of, of here. I mentioned a bunch of critics on the film. Well, first I mentioned James Franco goes through long monologues where he says, and I'm just quoting a few lines, but it goes on for like several minutes. This is a fucking American dream, you all. Look at my shit. I got shorts every fucking color. I got rooms for this shit. Machine guns. Look at this. And he's going on like a little kid saying, "Look how I have all these machine guns and I have all this cash of money and I have all these, you know, sh shorts in different colors." And this is the American dream, and you know, I'm all about the money. And this is, you know. And again, it's not, of course it's ironic, but it's not just ironic. I mean, there's a kind of, both because of the naivete in which he does it. Um, then, according from some others, Aisha Siddiqui wrote a very interesting article about it where she says that you get a turn from, um, the, from this display of female bodies for male gaze to one where it isn't really a male gaze anymore. Because, I mean, she points out, for instance, that one thing that's, and this, one thing that's absent from the from the film, which is present in the reality of Spring Break, is this kind of sense of rape culture of women being vulnerable, of women being vulnerably raped, raped when you have these young dudes and dudettes all you know almost naked, you know, getting drunk out of their minds and and partying like this. And the incident, the real life incident, which Lisa mentioned in her talk, is an example. And what Siddiqui says is that part of the power of the film is that he deliberately omits all of that. It's unthinkable in the context of the film, even though you have all this kind of sort of drugs and and bad behavior and stuff going on. There's also, I think, Joshua Clover and Shane Boyle do a kind of interesting Marxist analysis where, where they, their main point is that the whole film relies on the unplausible premise that, they, they, that these girls don't have credit cards, so they have to actually have the cash to do this, and it becomes a kind of weird fantasy of, of capital. And both Siddiqui and Clover and Boyle sort of tie into the question which I've been raising all throughout, that the film's all about, you know, white people getting empowered by doing stuff that is cliches of supposed black culture. I mean, it, I don't think it has anything to do with what black people really do, but it has a lot to do with the image of gangster rap, which is, you know, the way black, pe black culture is marketed to white people in America today predominantly. And as I mentioned before, you can tie this into a lot of other things in music videos and popular culture in the past year, which so sort of fit with this. So you have all these kind of ironies, but again, again, I want to argue that the affective distance I was talking about prevents them, prevents them from just being ironies. The kind of superposition, I mean, the superposition comes from quantum mechanics. I don't, I mean, Francis Laruel seems to apply it to philosophical positions. I wouldn't want to do that too completely, but, but it seems an apt metaphor at the very least. So anyway, um, I'm gonna hurry since I'm gonna. What I'm gonna do is I know I'm over time, so I'm gonna just finish this and I'll do very very quickly some of the philosophical ramifications, which is the underdeveloped part anyway. We have a hypnotic and emotional aesthetic fever dream. The film fear is subjective, but 
whose subjectivity it's, it's hard to say, it's partly because the four girls sort of seem like a group subject rather than individual subjects. Um, we have an affective logic rather than a cognitive one. A lot of things don't make sense. I'm suggesting the film makes sense on an affective level, even though it's so contradictory in the way it might not make sense on a cognitive level. Um, it's both a, f a film about embodiment and there's a lot of language and feeling of spirituality, free-floating spirituality, and those seem to contradict each other, but they're sort of both there, but the deliberate rationality which might tie them together is completely missing. And one can suggest, I don't want to make an argument that this film is necessarily therefore subversive, one can suggest, in fact, that these modulations of intensity, as with Robin James's description of electronic dance music, do conform to a specific paradigm, that of neoliberal subjectivity. But for me, the most, I mean, Korean's whole career is based on being a transgressive, shocking filmmaker, but um, in a way, there's nothing less transgressive than these all-American rituals of, you know, white kids going down to Florida to celebrate spring break and, you know, acting like stereotypical, you know, white dudes and stuff like that. I mean, the film sort of makes no distinction between hedonism and self-help. They both seem to be out of the same thing, and, or between transgression and hypernormativity. There's nothing more transgressive than what the girls do in the course of the film, but at the same time, it's just in the context of this this is sort of normative behavior in creating, you know, neoliberal subjects when they grow up and go back. And you have this language in the film they're calling, again, overlaid over the massacre scene at the end, they have them calls to make back to their parents saying, I really feel like I grow here, now I'm going to go back to school, I'm going to be serious as a student for the first time, I really feel like now I have a direction in life, and I don't know, maybe they do because they have all this money, it's hard to say. Anyway, so, I mean, this is just another quote from the spiritual monologue, which first, which several women say in the course of the film, and I'm going to do better now. I'm going to do the best I can be. Again, a very neoliberal sentiment. It was way more than just having a good time. More colors, more love, more understanding. And at night here, we can see way past the stars. We can see into the light. I thought of maybe having seeing into the light being the title of this talk because there is a weird way in which that kind of quasi-spiritual language does work in the aesthetic register of, of the film. Okay, I'm going to go... I have all these slides, but I'm going to go through them really briefly. I just want to suggest... You have multiple paradigms in recent film theory, psychoanalysis, cognitivism, phenomenology, and Deleuze's film theory. And I think film, this film and other post-continuum films pull, push the boundaries in all of these things. Um, for one thing, I think, yeah, there's, um, I take this seriously. I quote Deleuze here. I also quote Francois Laruelle in his work on still photography. But, um, there's a kind of way in which this is not a, a phenomenological film because it's a completely imminent one. Everything's happening on the same level. Things may contradict each other, but there's no hierarchy between them. There's no even real polarity between subject and object. That just doesn't seem the right language to use for this film. Um, this comes up with a theme which I'm really trying to work out in the book as a whole about non-phenomenological perception. And this has to do with several things. One is digital micro-perceptions, which are beneath the cognitive threshold, which is something you find in Leibniz, but which also I think contemporary philosophers of mind have talked about. Um, you don't have the film, I mean, again, the film's embodied in a way that phenomenology, that Vivian Subject and other phenomenological film theorists have argued, but the embodiment doesn't seem to relate to this reciprocity between perceived and perceived. It seems like that implies that opposition which seems to have collapsed. I, in terms of Whitehead, who I've done a lot of work on, it seems to have much more to do with Whitehead calls causal efficacy instead of presentational immediacy. I think I'll skip over that. In terms of Deleuze, this is one of several films, and again, I'm making this argument about what I'm calling post-continuum films in general. They don't really conform to either Deleuze's paradigm of the movement image or to his 
paradigm of the time image. There's a different kind of temporality than in either of these two. Either I mean, somebody needs to write Cinema 3. I mentioned a couple of books here which have tried to do that. Patricia Pister's The Neural Image proposes a third type of Deleuzean image. Sergei Sanchez is a Spanish film critic. I just got this book in the mail a couple of weeks ago. I haven't had a time to read it yet, but towards, an, towards a no-time image, which is the third regime of the image. Um, we have a sense of a, a temporality of time as being exterior rather than deeply interior. It has a lot to do with, I think, a replacement of depth. Deleuze connects depth of field spatially in Wells and René with depth of field and time, as it were, and we, we no longer have that kind of field of temporality. Um, and it has a lot to do with this kind of serial organization, electronic dance music, you know, play with intensities. But again, that's, that's all up to question. That's what I am trying to work on now, but I don't feel I have app. But anyway, that's my talk. Thank you. Thank you so much for your talk. Um, I have a question and a comment. And a, um, yeah. Uh, the question maybe first uh, is: um, I guess you were saying that the um, that in the end, it's like, is it all just a fantasy? Like, and um, and I'm I'm not sure if that was your your actual uh, suggestion. Um, and if it were, if it were no, I don't think it's a fantasy diegetically. I mean, it's like. It's not a realistic, it's not a naturalistic film, obviously. Right. I mean, so, so it's a fantasy in the sense that all films are fantasies, but right. it's not a fantasy. Exactly. Okay. But it's not, I don't think it's a fantasy for the characters. Right. Because that would be kind of, you know, giving yeah. the whole point about the film, right? Yeah. So, um, uh, so in the end, it's just, a, it's, it's a film, it's fiction, and, 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 and we, we're here to kind of, um, kind of make sense mm -hmm. of that, even though we make sense that it's not in the usual sentences, yeah. right? Okay, so, so my, uh, my comments were um, about your, um, the, the loop and the repetition, and, yeah. um, uh, and I mean, you described the scene where they, uh, they drive around the, the drive-through, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and then there's also like these, the, the, the repetition of when, when uh, one of the um, young women leaves and, and you yeah. have like, this, like the same sequence after a dr dramatic event. Mm -hmm. When you think about that, that kind of circle in terms of um, uh, new neoliberal um, emotions, right? Cause, yeah. Cause it's, um, so, uh, and I was also thinking about, like, uh, I mentioned in, a, um, in the coffee break, that, that it's um, like uh, um, uh, American Idol or the cat, all these cats and show, shows, or yeah. the shows of Superstar, um, um, where, where you have these um, programmed um, effective um, explosions, like, one has mm -hmm. to leave in the end, and then everyone is really sad, and then there's this music. Yeah. It's, just, it's, it's an authentic moment. I, I really feel with them at that moment, mm -hmm. but I, I know I can push the button and then it works for me. Uh, and then yeah. it's every, every time, right? And so I had to think about, thought, uh, thought about that in terms of neoliberalism as a, an ahistorical uh, regime, that, um, that uh, the logic or the supposedly historical um, narrative of neoliberalism is if things get wrong, we gotta fix it. But there's no like no sense of 
history. Um, and and so in, in that sense, of, I mean, it's, it's kind of an allegory on yeah. the deal of a um, way of um, dealing with emotions. So uh, I don't know if you can Well, again, I try, I try to be careful with this because I, I wasn't in this talk because it would have taken more time. Um, I'm a little worried sometimes by the way in which often neoliberal these days is thrown around to being basically any feature of our current social and economic system which somebody doesn't like. But I do think it has kind of specific reference. For me, it has to do with certain analyses. I mean, Foucault's pioneering analyses in the 70s and the birth of biopolitics lectures became volume from his lectures. And then going on to some, some things which have been observed by people like um, that there's a French book, um, uh, I'm blanking on, 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 on titles, Boltanski and Chiapello, the new, the new spirit of capitalism, and um, some of in the in the U.S. some David Harvey's analyses. I mean, there's a way in which neoliberalism is characterized is very different. I mean, what Foucault says, when I think he's right, though maybe it has to be complicated, is that the neoliberal homo economicus is very different from the liberal old liberal homo economicus. I mean. Adam Smith's Invisible Hand was about harmonizing the fact that even though we could have social harmony, even though there was competition because, so it's partly that competition would bring out the best, but also that it could be harmonized. Um, neoliberalism is more about how we have to create competition even where it doesn't exist and even if it makes things worse instead of better because competition itself is, is the highest good. So you have incredibly intrusive government bureaucracy now being used not to give poor people money, but to take poor money away from poor people. You know, and to create pseudo pseudo competition where where quote unquote naturally it wouldn't occur, and together with that you have this kind of packaging of emotions. I mean, there's again what's real and what's not. I mean, the part of the idea is also that it's not just physical goods which are become commodities, but like experiences are commodities, emotional states are commodities, things like that. And this has been done. There've been a lot of films, you know, dealing with this. You know, like the Arnold Schwarzenegger film where. He can't afford to go to from based on the Philip K. Dick story. He can't afford to go to Mars, so right. he has the memory implanted and stuff. You know, so I mean, this whole thing of so 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 this whole emotional landscape being commodified, I think, is part of it also. Right. I was not only like referring to the representational schema, but also like, yeah. the, the, the temporal logic of the film in terms of yeah. that, that um, replacing history through narration. And yeah. Narration is. Um, uh, oh, bad things happen, and then, you know, that, that the, Well, again, this is something I, I needed. Whatever this comes out, and whenever I write it out and becomes a published chapter or article, it'll have more about. I quoted Robin James, but she's done a lot of work about this, you know, and so in some articles and some blog postings, and presumably her second book, which is in the writing now. But it's again about how these thresholds of inten intensity um, and also the narrative of resilience, you know. You can be brutalized, and if horrible things happen, but you come back, you hold on, and you triumph over adversity. And that that narrative of resilience is a big part of is a big part of the neoliberal narrative. And James tries to say maybe the only way to resist this is to have not be resilient, not n not come back from, from being damaged, remain being damaged, being melancholic, being fucked up. I mean. It, musically, James connects us to Rihanna and Kanye West, as opposed to, say, to Jay Z or and Beyonce, who are both, you know, very resilient. Um, and I think there's something happening here. It has to do with Koreans fascinated with losers. I mean, the ridiculous thing is, is that you know, James Franco's character Alien is the one who you know whips the girls into this you know criminal life. You know, they do the initial crime to get the money, but he's the one who gets them into this lifestyle, and then they're going to go to raid the mansion of his rival, played by Gucci Mane, and. 
the first second they, they land with Doc, he immediately gets killed. And the two young women have to do it themselves because he's, I mean, again, it's this kind of not even quite ironic, more than ironic or post-ironic sense of how he's a loser and, you know, so... Yeah. So I want to go um, back to the film. I mean, it's hard now to discuss all your uh, proposals to uh, take it as a secret or departure uh, point. Um, so I want to go back directly to the film mm -hmm. at some level. And uh, so, I mean, when I have seen the film, I never had the idea that it was ironical. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't say that it's post-ironical. On some level, it works with this kind of, um, I mean, also the iconography yeah. uh, is pretty much uh, going back to surrealism. Uh, so this whole idea of the mask and the puppet and the doll. Yeah. And uh, so on some level, and the sculpture, so what you have shown um, from Corine's uh, uh, own yeah. ideas, um, I think it's much more related uh, to specific uh, iconographies and, let's say, fantasies and fantasies. Um, of so idea. Like, uh, um, Yeah. And so on some level, I wouldn't uh, uh, see it as being entirely um, as new as you seem to see. Um, okay. So I think it's, uh, uh, it's going through a whole pain on some level, uh, where you have this kind of, you know, uh, praising, breaking that. Yeah, and, I mean... Uh, I, in a kind of, you know, um, lift the moral and uh, uh, take it from the static letter. And uh, so I would see mm. much more in this sense as a film who very directly uh, goes into uh, politics of aesthetization. Um, thank you for that. I don't really disagree with it, but I might, what you said, I might emphasize it. I mean, I don't want to imply that this is film is so much novelty that nothing ever like it has ever been seen before. He's definitely drawing on existing things. I, I think that it adds up to something different because of the kind of extremities the film goes in and because of the kind of organization temporal organization I was trying to describe but yeah sure I mean I, I don't nothing's unfamiliar I mean part of you know he's dealing I mean he's aestheticizing you know part of this you know the when you have the scenes of all the dudes and dudettes on the beach you know yeah yeah I mean it's 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 the most you know it's been on so many MTV reality shows that it's the most like almost the most banal thing you can possibly imagine if I disagree with you, it would only be say that there may be these high cultural sources, but a lot of it comes from recent American popular culture. And he, I mean, it's sort of like you know, he takes this really like really banal and stupid stuff, and that's what he hyper aestheticizes in this in this really intensely weird way. So, and you know, that, so already yeah. Yeah. The, the trivial and putting it into a kind of new life, like here's a pink line. So yeah. Changes everything. And uh, so I wouldn't say that it's ironic, but on some level it's definitely what breaks, let's say, the cruelty and the sadism and all that. 
dann ist es kommentuell. Ja, disagree with you. I think maybe it's being modulated differently. I mean, again, in those other things, you don't have Britney Spears, you know, thinking about failed aspirations at the same time. I mean, there's, there's. I think it's something about, I mean, again, I, I, I totally agree with you that this is not like this is coming out from a field totally unprecedented. I think he's, I think though he is taking, and I agree with you, it's not, I mean, I talk about irony only because a lot of people have claim to find a lot of the film ironic and I really don't think it is I think but I, that's why I think it's post ironic because it's come after I mean I have a more general argument about po about when post irony you sort of have I mean in in one of my other things other chapters of what this book you have if you take the cycle of slasher films so you know Halloween in the 70s might have been imitating Psycho, but it was really scary and perturbing. After you had all these, but after you had so many imitations and sequels and ripoffs, it, it doesn't become, so you get to the 90s and you have the Scream series where the whole point is that everybody already, they're nowhere in a horror film, they know everything that happens in a horror film, and it's a horror film anyway, but it has to be done in this tongue-in-cheek way. But then sort of that became kind of boring. So first you had the next cycle you had in the U.S. was stuff like Saw and Hostel, which are just up the ante by showing really revolting, sadistic things directly on screen. But more recently, you had things like Cabin in the Woods, which tries to meta, to, to do a meta, you know, on meta level on the irony and acknowledge it, but try to make it serious again at the same time. And the other film I've been writing a lot about, Joseph Kahn's Detention, does this also. And I think it's it, 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 it's, it's maybe another dialectical stage if you want to see it in those terms, but it's 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 trying to get away from it's trying to get away from the just tongue in cheek. Everything's I mean it's sort of like the same thing happened in in sort of high theory. Baudrillard, you know, was the extermination of the real, and that was very compelling for a while. But now I think you know the stuff Baudrillard is talking about is itself perfectly real, rather than I mean you know. <laughs> I'm sorry, but only a you know snooty French intellectual would be horrified by Disneyland as opposed to just saying, "Well, yeah, that's what Disneyland is." You know, maybe I'm maybe I'm being a little too flippant, but that's sort of how I see it. Yeah, I, I would like to um, sneak in a question here because yeah. I, um, I find this concept of post-irony um, in this regard very helpful, and also regarding um, the question of affective dissonance. And here, I would have a question if you could kind of briefly sketch out yeah. a comparison between um, Spring Breakers and Trash Humbers, because I do think this works differently, and I think it might also make mm -hmm. clearer even the concept of um, affective dissonance, because I'm not sure it's so much at work in Trash Humbers, where like um, yeah. one is distanced more for instance by, like say, the VHS video, so I think yeah. kind of the scene to the light of Spring Breakers becomes the kind of the weird VHS night vision of trash humpers. Yeah. And I think that might change something about questions of post irony, irony or effective dissonance. I know yeah, thank you. Um, I agree. I mean I think there are some similarities to trash humpers. I mean it's basically just a group of people going around doing really stupid, you know, 
fun things, you know. Um, but Trash Hummers, as I said, I don't know how many people have seen it. Is it's it's deliberately made as lo-fi as possible. It's deliberately made kind of. Um, I mean, it's it's fake in the sense that you you know these old people masks are not convincing. He makes no effort to make it convincing, and his actors are all. I mean, his wife is both in one of the girls in Spring Breakers and one of the old and the old lady in Trash Humpers, but she's wearing the old person mask. And I mean, it's just you know. So the difference is the there's a I mean there's a kind of negative aestheticization by deliberately making I'm going to make this look really crappy so it's you know you don't really enjoy watching it. <laughs> And here he's trying to make it so beautiful that you can't help yourself enjoying watching it instead. But, and he's trying, I mean, he's trying, I mean, it's a kind of positive seduction instead of the kind of what, negative seduction of Trash Humpers. Yeah, well, I'm not sure what I can say more, more than that. I think this is a more interesting film to me, but maybe partly because I'm, because I, I just love these, you know, neon colors and stuff, you know. No, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense, and I think that way, like, the post-ironic for those who kind of mm -hmm. um, be thought of in terms of the question of the post-critical, right? Is it yeah. at the same time kind of maybe critical to a sense, but at the other time also an example of... Yeah, well, I don't mean... The thing, the, as I said... I mean, one of the other films I've been working on, I put a... I mean, I've given it a talk a couple times and I put a blog entry with my notes, basically, but it's a film called Detention by Joseph Kahn, who's mostly a music video director, and sort of it's a, it's a film which, like, combines 10 or 15 different genres... But one of them is a kind of slasher film. There's somebody, in, it's in a high school, and there's somebody who's, um, you know, been disguised as the slasher from a series of popular slasher movies who's always trying and is always killing people. And he, this, he finally gets unmasked towards the end of the film, and he's trying to kill the, the woman who's the heroine of the movie. And she says something like, she says very sarcastically, because they're exchanging one-liners, even though he's trying to kill her. Um, she says very sarcastically, yeah, so it's like so original for you to dress up as a serial killer from a movie. Wow, that's so original. And he says, read a book, it's called Post-Irony. <laughs> so, <laughs> another question. Yeah. Um, if, it's, if it's okay, I would like to ask the question yeah. too, like the, the, the very interesting uh, last few foils that you rushed through yeah. so quickly, um, because you... I think you mentioned very quickly in relation to electronic dance music um, the serial character or um, the idea of seriality. Yeah. Did I get that right? Maybe could you elaborate a bit on that and how we? Well, again, the stuff. The stuff on electric dance music is one part of the puzzle. I'm getting that from Robin James, so I'd recommend looking at her blog, which is it's her factory. It's the name of the blog. If you search for it's her factory, you'll find the, you'll find the blog. But she's had a bunch of articles, mm -hmm. also in the New Inquiry, which is a new American kind of left-oriented American online journal. Um, but anyway, she, she talks about these kinds of thresholds of intensity and how neoliberal management is not about a kind of narrative like tonality where you go away from the tonic and then you come back to it at the end. It sort of stays in the same key all along. That's not, there's no drama like that. The drama is instead going up to peaks and going down to, to troughs but remaining in control, going as far as you can without being without being able to recuperate and come and be irreparable. And she goes through a lot of hip hop songs and a lot of dance songs which sort of have this kind of kind of structure both in the lyrics and in how the music is organized. And she relates that to an idea that, you know, again, as Frederick Jameson among others said, you know, post modern or or contemporary capitalist experience is about intensity rather than about, which is different from I mean intensities are not quite subjective. They're like strong feelings, but they aren't they aren't quite 
categorizable and it's more like reaching thresholds and going as far as you can and then coming back and recuperating it and then you've sort of capitalized on your emotion and preserved it. So, so that's so that so that's sort of what's happened again, you know. And that's in this film, it's related, I think, both to the way in which you have these various outrageous or pseudo outrageous things going on, and yet it doesn't, you know, it, it, you know, the characters go through it and continue with it. I mean, again, the ending of the film is very much, again, interesting out of sequence, where they go in and they, they alien gets killed instantly, but they go in and they kill Gucci Mane and all his women and, you know, just kill everybody, and then they drive away in his Lamborghini, except that's not sort of the order which we see it in. And the last shot of the film shows them leaving after they've killed everybody and kissing James Franco's dead body um, as they leave. And that's before they, you know, drove away in the Lamborghini. And, you know, I mean, it's it, it's deliberately scrambled, but it, it, the emotional logic, I think, is like this logic of intensity and peaks and going, going back to a base level rather than one of, one of conflict being resolved, really. And so that's why it seems to me that the relation to James' description of... Jet, of of dance music makes a lot of sense. Yeah, thank you. I think we have two last questions. Um, if I haven't overlooked anybody. Uh, thank you for the great talk, by the way. Um, I was just wondering, um, you mentioned that um, Korean art portrays losers. Yeah. And um, so I was wondering what your take on these four girls is. If they are um, successful in a way, or how their heroic journey and like narratively works for you, if it's convincing yeah. or not. Well, I said I find everything in the film emotionally convincing, but I'm not sure that the emotions coalesce, and that's maybe the part of the point. But I mean, you sort of have—I mean, the the four women—they sort of are differentiated um, because two of them leave and two of them remain, and it's a pseudo triumph narrative. I mean. So, again, I'm not sure what the answer is. I think that, you know, ultimately to the extent that they, you know, they can, they can be real badass and they kill all of Alien's enemies and, you know, walk off, drive off into the sunset in a Lamborghini and after calling their parents said, well, go back to college and now we'll be serious students. The very beginning of the film, you see them sitting in this, it's a beautiful scene because it's like this really, it's done visually rather than I think, it's not how any class I've ever taught is like, but there's a lecturer who you can't even see, the room's dark, everybody has a computer terminal which they're looking into. And they, I mean, basically, the lecturer is talking about um, how black African American soldiers came back from World War II, and and having experienced the war, they and you know, war fought against racism, and 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 having the responsibility and the weapons, they are unwilling to take the subordinate status which black folks were accepting before the war. So this is and how this is like part of, among the first stirrings of what becomes the civil rights movement in the fifties, and. The two girls, you know, the two badass ones who reign at the end are just are ignoring the lecture and drawing pictures, you know, silly pictures of cocks and passing to each other and, and laughing and giggling and talking about how they wish they had enough money to go to spring break. So there's this kind of disavowed narrative, and that, to me, seems to fit in with later on where we have this whole, we, we have this whole displacement, which I mentioned seems to be a theme coming up a lot recently in American popular culture of even a feminist statement of white women liberating themselves on the backs, basically, of black people who don't get liberated. Um, so, I mean, you know, it's sort of, I don't think Kareem's very political, but I think he's aware of it, and that's why it gets written into the narrative in that way. So, I mean, again, so that's really part of it, and I'm not sure how one wants to react react to that. I think, emotionally, I didn't talk, one thing I didn't talk about was Selena Gomez's character. She's one of the four who's religious, and there's an early scene in the film where there's 
a religious youth, a youth pastor is exhorting them, and the youth pastor is actually played by an actor who's actually a professional wrestler. So there's, which, you know, and anyway, she goes down, and but she, and she's enjoying herself, and she talks about, you know, how it's a spiritual experience, how it really, how meaning, deeply meaningful it is, all this kind of stuff. But then she gets really freaked out by James Franco, and and goes back, and there's this really great scene, which Korean and his interviews is particularly proud of, where James Franco is trying to convince her not to leave. And he said, you know, the other three girls are going to stay. Why don't you stay? I really care about you. You know, I think you're a wonderful person. I really... And it's not quite sexual, but it's enough, sexual enough to be a little bit creepy. And she is, like, really freaked out. And, I mean, it's it's great acting in a conventional sense, but it's it's sort of... It's sort of one note, and when you know when she leaves and goes back home, the other three are left, and they're they become more you know acting out and more gangsterish in the absence of her you know sensibility balancing. And then the second one leaves after she gets shot, and then the two remaining you know become completely badass and go completely into this kind of gangster fantasy. I'm not sure that answers your question, but that's I mean it has again. Yeah, I'm really not sure. I had that as a question mark on one of the. Yes, I had that a question mark on one of the sides. Alien, the James Franco character, sort of fits into this model because he's, you know, he's ultimately pathetic because you know he has all this you know boasting, but he gets killed instantly when they have this final raid. I'm not sure what you make of the young women. It may be that they're not losers, but I'm not sure what they are. If they're not losers, maybe you know. We have to be non-ironic, you know, when James Franco's saying, this is the American dream, you know, just having all this stuff and, you know, stuff I can't do anything with, but I just have, you know, I have every T-shirt ever made and I have every gun ever made and I have all these piles of money all stashed in my bed and all this kind of stuff. Um, so, I mean, you, that's, you can almost see that as parodic and as one place where the movie really is being ironic, but it's almost sort of like, I mean, to me it relates to the fact that it's only pseudo-transgressive. I mean, one of the things I feel is, one of the things in the 21st century, and this applies both to high art and to low art, I think, is that the 20th century, I mean, a lot of great art was about transgression. But by this point, transgressions become completely normativized. Being transgressive is the way, you know, you're successful. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, CEOs are supposed to be sociopaths, basically. Um, being trans Anything transgressive can be sold. So, I mean, it's sort of like Georges Bataille, whose writings I dearly love, was sort of writing in the 40s and 50s, he felt these sexual things he was doing, which was like so outre and so extreme and so scandalous. And now, you know, you can find, I'm sure you can find internet subculture for much weirder things than he ever thought up. And it's sort of like anything which used to be transgressive is now monetized. And so transgression doesn't, I think, work as, as an aesthetic strategy of subversion anymore the way it did work for much of the 20th century. And part of the, the way this is a kind of different regime of images and sounds, I think, is that, you know, different kind of strategies have to be found. So the film, as I said, the language of self-help, self-help, and hedonism seem to do the same thing, and the transgression, and the, I mean, what, there's nothing more normative than spring break as an American ritual, where you know college students, you know, grow up kind of thing. So that plus the you know getting lots of money. I mean, there's a there's a sense in which those opposite poles have collapsed, and you know, so is that? I hope that's an answer. I'm, one last question. Yeah. Um, so I have a question about uh, periodization and about sort of theoretical legacies, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking through your talk partially with uh, Lisa's last talk. Um, yeah. And during the question period, Professor Koch asked the question, well, is this, you know, to some extent, a phase of uh, something protected late capitalism, right? And so when I heard that, I sort of, you know, 
I hear the kind of question of Jameson talking about on one hand postmodernism, but also saying, well, really, this is part of this late capitalist uh, project. I think in some ways, maybe her question to you raised some of the same thematics. Yeah. Um, and listening to what you were saying, I mean, uh, I asked this question because it's something I struggle with, right? Yeah. Um, when you're talking, for example, about the uh, Skittles lighting, mm-hmm. you know, I'm thinking of Jameson's comment on the Warhol thing. Yeah. Uh, when you're talking about this sort of breakdown in linearity, this sort of confusing time and space, again, I'm thinking difficulties with cognitive mapping. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, you, you can also link this up with you know, James and the thinking about yeah. global capitalist flows. So, 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 to the really simply and bluntly, right, to what extent when we're thinking about post cinema, are we thinking about a sort of continuation and intensification of what's gone with the name of? Postmodernism. To what extent are we dealing with some qualitative shift for which we need to start developing a new language theoretical frame? Yeah. Thanks. I mean, again, I'm tempted to. I don't want to be. I mean, without, hopefully, without being obnoxious, to say yes to all of that. And I mean, it's sort of. Again, I think they're obviously they're continuities. I mean, I don't think history ever operates by radical, dis, totally radical discontinuities. But there are shifts. There's a kind of you know. The Marxists used to call it the change from quantity into quality. I guess that's from Hegel originally. And, you know, quantity, I mean, it's by the beginning when he was talking about Bordwell's intensified continuity. Bordwell just wants to say that film always is, you know, trying to give the same narrative satisfactions to audiences. And obviously it is in a way, but at some point when the technique becomes different enough, um, something change, it, it flips over. I don't want that, I don't think it's as neat as Hegelian dialectics that becomes its opposite, but something qualitatively shifts. And, we're sort of in a mutation, I think, which has to do with the you know combination of political economy and technology. So I think it's worth thinking about the technological things of thinking you have all these digital tools. I mean, there's a there's a quite first of all, older things continue to be done. There are movies made every year which do well at the box office, which are have, are still fairly classical in 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 everything in everything about them. And of course, you can use you can use digital editors to make a film which is edited in an, in an older manner. You can also do the reverse. Michel Gondry likes to take things which look like digital effects, but he actually does with that in, by analog means. And that's kind of you know, as as a music video pioneer, that's, that's one of his little jokes. So there's not an absolute thing, but nonetheless, there's a kind of shifting ground. And you know, so that's why I, I don't want to say either it's completely different or that it's just merely a continuation. Obviously, both are kind of true in a way, or that it's mixed between those. I mean, I'm almost, I think part of the aesthetic question of of our period has something to do with how do you make something new out of recombination of previously existing elements, and so much of postmodern art and what Jameson Copas teaches about that, and also since the word creativity, which was actually introduced into the English language in the early 20th century by Alfred North Whitehead, now is something which they have in every business school. You know, every business school, they're talking about innovation, disruption, creative destruction, you know, creativity. It becomes, you know, the business school mantra, and a lot of it seems like more, more of the same. I mean, you know, Apple can't introduce a new slight variation on their iPhone, and I admit I buy them, you know, but which it's a slight variation. This is the most, you know, radical change, you know, it's, it's, it's a totally new paradigm. And so the question, you know, I mean, again, this kind of, Everything remaining the same, but also, well, you're constantly announcing radically new paradigms is a feature of our political economy. At the same time, because of digital technologies changes, there really are totally new kinds of possibilities or forms being introduced. At the same time, of course, the technology doesn't exist by itself because 
any technology can be used in multiple ways, and that a lot has a lot to do with political economy and with you know how practices get developed under economic constraints in our society. So, again, I'm I'm giving you a totally evasive answer, but I'm saying I'm trying to convince you that the evasive answer is actually right rather than just evasion. Thank you, everybody, for the questions and for listening to my talk. So it's great to be here.